Stand Up For The Truth is sponsored by Lakeshore Communications Incorporated and made possible by your generous tax-deductible donations at StandUpForTheTruth.com slash donate. This is Stand Up For The Truth, a packed hour of challenging discussion addressing important issues and topics affecting Christians across the nation. Join the conversation via email at comments at StandUpForTheTruth.com. Now, David Fiorazzo. Hello, brothers and sisters in Christ. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you also for sharing the podcast and for your support. Uh, it means a lot, and um, the numbers reflect that you guys are doing the work and just sharing the, the podcast with people because, as you know, we've been censored, shadow banned, and everything else on social media. So God bless you. Thanks for that. Um, very important topic today. I know you guys really love to hear about what's going on in our culture and, and, and all the, the, the tyranny we've experienced in the United States of America. You like uh, Bible prophecy. You, you like um, just different things relating to religious freedom and church and false teachings. This is going to wet your apologetics whistle. And this topic today, um, get ready, because I've got a brand new book in my hand. It's called, and it's a massive volume, it's called Traced. Human DNA's Big Surprise by Dr. Nathaniel Jensen. And I want to just share a little bit about the book before I introduce you to him and get a little bit of info about his background. But um, this book is groundbreaking. There's research in here, and it provides one of the strongest arguments for the recent origin of humanity. And it puts biblical authority on the offense instead of defense. You know, we're always playing defense, right? Uh, but this is an amazing, there's so much information in here you're going to appreciate. It also provides some answers to the mystery of early human history using genetics, history, and linguistics. And it uncovers the origin and fate of the people from seven of the world's great civilizations. So much information in here, and we're just going to bring in our guest right now, Dr. Nathaniel Jensen. He holds a Ph.D. in Cell and Developmental Biology from Harvard University. He serves as a research biologist, author, and speaker with Answers in Genesis. And, of course, we've had Ken Ham on the podcast. We've had Tim Chafee on the podcast. Um, Dr. Nathaniel Jensen was formerly... Uh, conducting research with the Institute for Creation Research, and he holds a B.S. in molecular biology and bioinformatics. We're going to ask him about that. He's also the author of the book, Replacing Darwin, The New Origin of Species, and what we're going to talk with him about today is the brand new book called Traced, Human DNA's Big Surprise, which Ken Ham says about it. He says, Dr. Jensen has found the Rosetta Stone of human history. Nathaniel, welcome to Stand Up For The Truth. Thank you so much, David. Well, thank you for taking the time today and uh, for all your work. It's, it's, it is groundbreaking. I haven't read the whole book, but my goodness, uh, I know you told me the first uh, printing is sold out and people can order the book, but it may be a little bit. Um, now, I want to ask you from your background, um, I, I would consider you, in, in layman's terms, a brainiac. <laughs> uh, you were homeschooled, so that makes sense now. Uh, you graduated from high school. You didn't know what exactly what field you were leaning toward becoming a doctor and a researcher and in one of the most cutting-edge and controversial fields in medicine today, stem cells. So tell us a little bit about your journey, how you got to your field today. Yes, so I think part of my career confusion stemmed from my own struggles with sin and uh, figuring out how does saving faith connect to godly living. So most of my teen years, I'd say struggled with secret pornography, kept it secret from most of my parents, you know, excuse me, from my parents and most of the church folks. Was was externally a very good kid on the outside, the model child, which mm. meant I was just very good at hiding my sin. So <laughs> that's been a big struggle, and uh, probably part of the reason I didn't go to a Christian college or consider those things, because you have to give your testimony. What are you going to do if you if you know you're living in sin? So, wow. um, and I made excuses for it, these sorts of things. So went to a, a small branch of the Wisconsin system, University of Wisconsin Parkside, which the alums affectionately called the dark side, <laughs> probably one of the lowest uh, entrance score requirements. But there was a great uh, teacher or professor-student ratio, and so I got into a lab very early on and had great mentorship there in terms of doing scientific research, which I think made a big difference in being able to go straight to Ph.D. school instead of having to do, let's say, a year or two just 
working somewhere in a lab or do a master's, these sorts of things. And my interest at that time was working on the question of cancer. When I started graduate school in 2003, the connection between cancer and adult stem cells, so the stem cells just being the, the, the cells that sustain our body, for example, our red blood cells live only three months. And so you've got to constantly, your body has to constantly keep replacing them. And ultimately, it's stem cells that are responsible for this. Anyway, mm-hmm. long story short, there's a lot of, of the properties of stem cells that seem to find a, a, a mirror or a parallel in cancer, where there's just a few cancer cells that seem to sustain a whole cancer tumor. Uh, there, there's just a few stem cells that sustain your body. Anyway, there's, there's lots of parallels. And so the, the whole field was moving in the direction of could there be some connection between the two ended up doing research on how do stem cells normally function, because if you want to understand how things go awry, you have to understand what the basic uh, workings are of the normal state. You have to define normal to know mm-hmm. how am- abnormal goes. And uh, it was also in graduate school, I'd say that it, I, I would look back and see where the gospel, which of course we all know means good news, went from being old news, because I'd heard it my whole life, but it was still struggling, wrestling with how does this make a difference in my life, went from being old news to being good news, where this is exciting, holiness is beautiful, this is the promise of Christianity to be with God forever, to enjoy His presence, to enjoy being holy and free from sin. This is what makes Christianity attractive. So you could, I don't know if I was born again then or back then, or whatever the actual explanation is, <laughs> but it was a transformative experience, which then also changed my career path from Let's try to cure cancer, win the Nobel Prize, and preach the gospel, which, again, in theory is, is, a, is, is a noble cause. But in my case, I could look at what I had been doing in graduate school and say this is heavily contaminated by selfish ambition. And so tried to rechannel all that ambition towards something with more immediate kingdom application and considered overseas missions, uh, considered just dropping science altogether and going to seminary. Ended up, after graduate school, joining the Institute for Creation Research, so there was a way, uh, I thought, to continue to apply the scientific training I had learned, but for something more immediately apologetically relevant. And so I was there six years, and I've been about six years here at Answers in Genesis. Praise God. What a great organization and impactful worldwide and uh, on the church and the world and the culture, or as Ken Ham says, on the culture. Um, I want to ask you, Dr. Nathaniel Jensen, uh, about a comment you made in an interview, because I did a little bit of research on you. Just, there's, uh, it's just some fascinating things about your background. By the way, thank you for your honesty about where you were at spiritually. And uh, it's a problem when we are hypocrites uh, living one way and saying another like we're following the Bible. But thank you. Um, you said one, at one time it sounded like um, going to Harvard Medical School would be useful to Uh, for your credentials, but also for evangelism. So right off the top, you wanted to get the education, but you also wanted to find ways to evangelize. Uh, Give us a little bit more info about that. Yeah, so even though I was living in sin, I had a very strong Christian upbringing. Whether whether or not that actually actually allowed that to make a difference is a whole other question, but my parents gave me a strong background in homeschool. This is, so I would have started about 1986, which would have been the ground floor, so to speak, in Wisconsin for the homeschool movement at that time. My parents took me to Worldview Weekend Conferences, heard Ken Ham speak and others, and we had creationist materials in the house. So I had this very strong creation science background. My dad was a dentist. Uh, my mother was a nurse until she had me, and then became a stay-at-home mom and homeschool mom. So there was this scientific emphasis in the house. There was this creation science emphasis in the house, and I had grown up with this. It was very, I feel very strongly prepared for anything I'd hear in class once I went off to secular college. I mean, I lived at home, but when I attended classes at secular college, and so by the time I get to graduate school, even though my interest is cancer, there was that idea in the back of my head, well, what if, what if we do something apologetically someday? Would a Harvard PhD be useful? Mm-hmm. My thought was yes. Again, it wasn't the primary purpose, mm-hmm. because my focus was medical research and curing cancer and these sorts of things, in a sense, a passing thought as I was trying to decide which, of the, which school to go to. And, and I, the, the major focus, I think, was, hey, Harvard has the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, and so you've got this massive concentration of cancer researchers there. Surely there's some sort of opportunity to do cancer research. But that, that, did, uh, that did cross my mind. Mm-hmm. So um, I just want to remind people, the book, Traced, is available on the Answers in Genesis website. It is back-ordered because the first printing went 
pretty fast, and I can see why with the groundbreaking research. One more question, Nathaniel, before we get in, into the, actually into the book. And by the way, I'm using in part some questions I had previously received and also the article on AnswersInGenesis.org traced human DNA's big surprise, which you wrote, and you kind of put um, really uh, seven different categories here, and so we'll be talking a little bit about that. But first, I want to ask you back to stem cell research. Of course, it's a hot-button issue, uh, science, politics, the media, and it's particularly when it comes to abortion and vaccines. So when the Massachusetts legislator tried to overturn laws regarding the ethical use of embryonic stem cells, you and some of your colleagues were invited to submit expert testimony. And I would love for you just to share a little bit about that experience and what was the conclusion. Yeah, I was in the lab one day, received a call from California. I think it was a pro-life group or some sort of ethics group saying, hey, by the way, Massachusetts is trying to overturn their laws on the books. I think the laws, I don't know how far back they went, but were in the way, basically, for those who wanted to do embryonic stem cell research. I think it governed fetal human tissue research, and so they were trying to relax them to make it easier for the scientific community to use embryonic stem cells, which in my mind were unethical because you're you're destroying the em- embryo or suspending the life of it. Whatever, whatever you're doing, the ultimate end of this is the destruction of human life. Amen. And so they said, here's the here's a public hearing, uh, I got to go, because I was just a graduate student at the time, I was part of the riffraff, I guess, so to speak, so you had to get there early in the morning, sign your name, and hope they call on you. My boss would go on national television to advocate for embryonic stem cell research, and he was invited as expert testimony, and we showed up there. I didn't, I didn't know he was going. I, I mean, I, I sat then in the audience waiting for my turn and never got the chance, but uh, there were several people invited by the legislature to, to give testimony. He was one of them, and when we found each other, he said, hey, well, Nice to see you here. I mean, he's very polite, great guy, and uh, said, "I, I, I understood. I, or how do you put it? I expect you're here for the opposition." I said, "Yes, I am." <laughs> and uh, came and found me the next day. Uh, I think he's nominally Catholic, but just had the same view as the vast majority, it seemed, of the scientific community, which is we should proceed with this life-destroying research, which, of course, they say they hope to save lives, but right. you, don't, you don't kill lives to save them. Amen. But he found me the next day and asked me how I thought about it, and, and I, I found it to be a very eye-opening experience in the sense that even in the Massachusetts legislature, which is well-known for being one of the most toxic places for anything conservative yes. or pro-life, and I could tell stories about that at a, at a <laughs> Massachusetts Citizens for Life conference I went to, but um, the the theater that was being played, in a sense, was mm-hmm. really fascinating. There was uh, the, the pro-embryonic stem cell crowd brought in a lady who, I'm not even sure her mind was fully there, brought her up to speak at the microphone, and uh, please, I heard you can help. And someone, one of the legislators, I don't know if he was conservative or liberal or what, but caught on to what was going on and said, ma'am, uh, are you aware of adult stem cells? He, he, he saw right through the charade that they were using this lady as a prop and hadn't told her half of what was going on. She said, no, what's that? Anyway, he said, thank you, and just to expose them, basically, for being duplicitous. One of the most moving aspects of the whole experience, though, was uh, a lady who came forward in defense of life, who, I don't know if she had Parkinson's or what, but couldn't even hold the microphone, obviously severely afflicted by something, so that her son, I think, had to hold it for her. But here's this lady who in theory, would have all sorts of reasons to advocate for any and every type of treatment possible to cure whatever had ailed her, yet was so committed to the defense of innocent life and helpless life in the womb that she got up and publicly testified, please do not do this, do not proceed, which I don't know how anyone could have watched that and not have been moved Mm. seeing someone who had so much reason to think the opposite yet stood strong in her conviction. So the the whole experience was just really fascinating and eye-opening. And uh, my my boss and I maintained our separate positions, but uh, I feel like still had a cordial relationship about it. And, And unfortunately, the law the, the the goal of the pro-embryonic stem cell research was achieved, and they overturned the books, law on the books, and went away doing their research. Hmm. And so that's that's how things turned out. But that that still didn't take away from what I had seen there on the floor and and the courageous stands people took in defense of life. Wow, you could write a little book about that, about that experience, and that uh, that's just just amazing. It because uh, murder has now become a political issue, and I know our listeners know what that means. 
Um, and, and it's quite sad, but this is, what, this is part of the battle in America. But I want to get back to your book now, uh, Dr. Nathaniel Jensen, and it's called Traced, and it has far-reaching consequences for numerous contemporary debates. And this is from the bullet points I took down on issues of race, prehistory, minority groups, the age of the earth, and biblical authority. But I want to go back to the beginning, and one of the questions that's often asked is, what happened to the ancient Egyptians uh, when their civilization fell? Did the Egyptian people disappear? Uh, do their descendants exist to this day? What about the ancient Persians, Romans, Mayans? And then this, I just want to say one more thing. For years, the answers to these questions have been hidden, but not anymore. You've discovered this DNA-based generation-by-generation family tree for global humanity. And I would just love for you, we've got five minutes before our break, just to unpack this, and we'll dive in more after we, in the next segment. Those were all questions I grew up with and never had answers to. My last history class was in high school, or last history classes, I guess, probably U.S. history and world history, and learned, probably like so many of us did, a political history of the globe, a cultural history, religious history. I was in a Christian high school, an explicitly young earth creation, Christian high school, and had, I think, Bob Jones' curriculum for high school. And so we learned a, a Christian view of the world and the major events that changed it and the Reformation and these sorts of things, you know, Renaissance and, and all these familiar periods of world history that were taught in school. But that the, the missing segment in all this, and this is not any disrespect to any history curriculum writer, was the story of the peoples themselves, who they came from. For example, you know, we say Rome is founded in the 700s B.C., and if you put the flood about 2500 B.C., roughly, that's almost 2,000 years of history where there's nothing said about the Roman people. So what are they doing? Who do they come from? Where were they before they founded the city of Rome? Hmm. It's just a big blank spot, a big mystery, and then the other side of that equation is once the Germanic peoples overthrow the Western Roman Empire, do the Roman people persist through that? Do they give rise to the modern Italians? Can the modern Italians claim them legitimately as, as their ancestors? None of these questions are answered in history class. And again, that's not due to the fault of the history class writers. It's because we haven't had the data for it. We haven't had the tools mm -hmm. to be able to answer these questions. And so you just you, you tell the history that you can with the tools that we have. And now we've got this brand new... DNA-based tool to investigate all these things, and that's that, that basic historical investigation is what leads to so many of these other ramifications that you had ticked off in terms of changing race and ethnicity, how we talk about that discussion, thinking about indigenous histories. So just to talk about the, the race and ethnicity side, what the book shows is once you start plotting out and mapping out the answers to who the people of these civilizations come from and who the people of these civilizations give rise to after the political entity collapses or falls or gets overthrown, what you find is a tremendously messy interconnectedness among the peoples of the globe. What you can say strongly is, what, what I try to show strongly in the book is, the so-called races, black, white, Asian, African, European, mm -hmm. have changed multiple times in human history. So when someone wants to talk about, well, is this race superior to this race, or is this race inferior to this race, how can you even have such a discussion when that very word itself has such an ambiguous, malleable meaning? If there are light-skinned people who once had dark-skinned ancestors and did so for thousands of years, if there are dark-skinned people who had light-skinned ancestors for thousands of years, or olive-skinned ancestors for thousands of years, how does any of that discussion hold any weight? How can anyone argue for the superior superiority or inferiority of anything. We can make that case scripturally very strongly. I feel like the science then from this DNA-based family tree just blows that up and takes it to a whole other dimension because now you can't even talk about that entity as, as something that's fixed and unchanging. That, that's the implicit assumption in, let's say, the, the argument of a white supremacist, that white somehow has meaning, that it's been fixed, that it's been unchanging. I've seen, because there have been some white supremacists who've tried to troll my page and, <laughs> and weren't too happy with what the book is concluding. concluding. Well, you know, we, we, of course, come to the ancient Romans. I said, mm, not so fast. Most Europeans actually come from Central Asians, people who probably looked more Chinese than yeah. Roman yeah. just about a few thousand years ago. So it's, it's these sorts of things that emerge from just answering a basic historical question. And, and I should say, the book primarily is a history book, but when you begin to connect the dots historically, that's where these crazy ramifications begin to emerge. And, and, and just in terms of, add one more point here, in terms of indigenous history and thinking about missions, 
I've got an increasing number of examples of indigenous histories, let's say the, the Bantu-speaking peoples of Africa, or uh, the Karen people of Burma, or the Delaware Indians of, of the Americas, of, of their indigenous accounts of here's who we came from, here's when it happened, or whatever level of detail they describe, you can see a nearly exact echo of this in the, y, the, the DNA-based tree. So this is, this is male-inherited DNA, mm-hmm. just as a technical side note that, that we're talking about, the father-son DNA that we're looking at, but it's a DNA-based tree. You can see all these sorts of echoes of these indigenous histories in the tree, which mainstream science likely just dismisses as mythological or, well, yeah, we don't believe that anymore. They must have missed something. In a sense, now the young earth creationists can give them their history back and say, yes. no, what you're talking about is real. And, and, then, and on top of that, I can connect these groups back to specific men with this tree, DNA-based tree, back to specific men in Genesis 10 and say, your story starts here wow. with this man, this descendant of Shem or descendant of Joktan or descendant of Ham. This is where your story starts. This This isn't just as... I think some missionaries have heard, not just a white man's book. This is a book that applies to every single people group on earth. That's right. It's your story of, of fall and redemption through Christ. Here's where your, your own history starts, and here's the solution to the problem that faces every one of us. Wow. You can see, friends, why this book sold out so quickly, and it's gone on to the second printing already in one month. Um, we're speaking with Dr. Nathaniel Jensen, a research biologist and speaker for Answers in Genesis, and the book is called Traced, Human DNA's Big Surprise. We've got so much more to unpack with Dr. Jensen when we come back on Stand Up for the Truth. Keep it right here. Your monthly financial support of StandUpForTheTruth.com is needed and appreciated. Now, back to today's Stand Up For The Truth with David Fiorazzo. Uh, friends, I'm so blessed today to talk to Nathaniel Jensen, and we were going to do two segments and um, talk about another issue in segment three, but we uh, have just agreed to keep him for the whole hour. He is uh, thankfully able to do this for us, but I do want to mention one thing. We were going to talk a little bit about uh, the abortion wars, of course, how they're, everyone's preparing for this angst in the Supreme Court final decision on Roe v. Wade. And by the way, the states need to decide, right? If they say uh, Roe v. Wade is not constitutional and they overturn it, that doesn't mean abortion is going away. Um, They'll just go across state lines in a blue state or whoever legalizes abortion to whatever degree. But I just want to mention one thing, Um, and this is from an article I was going to go through today very briefly on, it's about apologetics, about defending life in the womb. It's a compelling question. Imagine your child walking, I'm sorry, yeah, walking up to you when your back is turned and asking you this question, Daddy, can I kill this? And you don't see what he or she is talking about. What's the first thing you have to find out before you answer? You can never answer the question, can I kill this, unless you have answered a prior question, and that is, What is it he or she is talking about? Abortion involves killing and discarding something alive. And as we now know from the Bible, of course, but science and DNA and biology and everything else, um, that it is a pre-born human being. It is a human life in a mother's womb. So that's the question. So the answer to can I kill this, it is a very moral uh, question, and and we cannot make it political. However, it has become a political question. Uh, ping-pong ball, unfortunately, in our government. Now, back to this very important book. I just had to get that out of there, out of the way. The book is called Traced, and Dr. Nathaniel Jensen works for uh, at Answers in Genesis with Ken Ham. Um, he's a research biologist, and we're talking about these fascinating discoveries, and we're just going to go through a little bit of the, about the book and the article um, th- that's on the website, by the way, Answers in Genesis. So, uh, Nathaniel, race has been a huge issue. You've already alluded to it uh, before. And, and I think years ago, we had Dr. Charles Ware uh, on the program. He co-wrote a book. I, I don't remember if that was that with Ken Ham. I don't remember. But yes, it yes. was uh, One Race, One Blood, or One Blood, One Race. And yes, so that's it. Yep. this is a huge issue today, and there's still so much confusion about this. But you alluded to it. Th- that uh, we come from the same line, the same DNA. Could you kind of further explain that and give our listeners a little bit of ammo in defending this truth, this biblical truth? Yeah, and and I think it's helpful just to step back for a moment and set the biblical framework and say, 
why do we even talk about this issue? And I'd say because the Bible implies this is a very significant issue from the outset. You think about the biblical anthropology, history of humanity, from a scriptural perspective, just hit the highlights real fast. God creates two people in the beginning, Adam and Eve, and all of us, every race, ethnicity, comes from Adam and Eve, and so that that should immediately raise some questions (laughs) in your mind, thinking, well, there's a lot of different people, so how do we all come from two people? And, And you have to repeat that question again once you get to the flood, because the Bible says that every single person except for Noah, his wife, his sons and their wives, were destroyed in the flood. And so, once again, how do we all go back to eight people if there's so many differences among us? And scripturally, we have the framework for that where it says after the flood, Genesis 10, Genesis 11, God commands the people, the descendants of Noah, to spread out. They disobey and said they tried to build a tower and a city, and so God says, I'm going to force you to spread out and confuses their languages. And so this begins the process then of separating people into ethnicities and what we sometimes call races. But the the, the basic science is essentially the same in, in each of these cases. From If you ask the question, how do you get people from races from Adam and Eve, from Noah and his family, from after the Tower of Babel? In each case, the answer seems to be God has encoded from the beginning the capacity for people to produce all sorts of variety. And, and the basic genetics behind it is I have DNA from my dad, I have DNA from my mom. Now, again, I think because of the Tower of Babel, we tend to be within certain uh, groups that tend to share physical features, and we tend to keep reproducing people that look like us. And so my, both my, I'm Caucasian of European descent, my mother's full German, my dad has a mix of ancestry of, of French and Bohemian, and these sorts of things, I think. But in, if you look at my parents, they're, they're Caucasian, I look Caucasian, and straight dishwater blonde hair, these sorts of things. Well, how can all that, how can I have a common ancestor with someone from sub-Saharan Africa who's got dark skin and, and tight, coily hair, or with a, with a Chinese man who's got uh, olive skin, maybe a shorter stature than I am, and uh, straight black hair, and these sorts of things? Well, the answer is, God puts in Adam and Eve from the beginning, and of course this is passed on down to Noah and his family, the capacity to produce all sorts of ethnicities, every, every single ethnicity known under the sun. And and the principle behind it, I think, is best understood by analogy or by example. I've got neighbors just a few doors down where dad is dark-skinned, mom is light-skinned, and the children are neither light-skinned nor dark-skinned, but intermediate. And if those, so, so they've got genetics from, you could call them African genetics in a sense, from dad, and European genetics from mom. They've got a mix of that in their DNA. And if they were to grow up and marry other people like themselves, let's say, they may, uh, let's say the sons who's of mixed ethnicity, grows up and marries someone else who also has parents of different ethnicities, that couple has the capacity within themselves to produce all sorts of mm. ethnicities, a whole spectrum <laughs> of ethnicities, because they have, again, two copies of their DNA that have two different versions, and, and there's so many different possibilities when you think of it. DNA is not just inherited, inherited as one single chunk. There's a whole combination of instructions if you, if you do the math i mean it just it it it's it's explosive in terms of the total number of mathematical possibilities and combinations and permutations you can get just from two people given the amount of dna that's in our cells and the type of variety that's there so all that to say the capacity for producing diversity physical diversity has been there from the beginning and we see glimpses of this especially in our modern world where the so-called ethnicities are now coming together more and more because of the globalization of the world and because of technology allowing us to travel. And you think of the U.S. being a melting pot. Mm-hmm. All this now plays, plays its way out. So what the book Traced adds to this discussion, and, and I go through some of this in one of the opening chapters talking about, hey, here's the basic genetics behind it. Here's how you can get so-called racial change in the generational blink of an eye. What we now have what the book adds to this discussion is a DNA-based family tree. And just to clarify some of the, the a technical point behind all this, what we're looking at is the results not of a typical genetic test. So this has, of course, become popular doing genetic testing. Who do I come from? The typical genetic test looks at the DNA we get from both parents, which is a double-edged sword. It's mm. great because you get mom's side, you get dad's side, but that's also its Achilles' heel because I'm 50% my dad, 50% my mom genetically. The same holds true for them. So I'm 25% each of my grandparents uh-huh. genetically, 12.5% great-grandparents. It just drops off exponentially. And so the typical genetic test 
or the dirty little secret of a typical genetic test <laughs> is that it takes you back only four or five generations, which you probably already know from your family tree. So you're $100 the poor, and you don't know anything more beyond <laughs> that. It's a great tool if you've been adopted. And in fact, we've had people write yes. in saying, hey, I'm adopted. Can you help me find my parents? And that's just really satisfying to give them some of their own family history back. What the book does is look at DNA that's inherited only through one parent, which that, that solves the problem of the other parent diluting the genetic signal. So in this case, we're looking at the Y chromosome. For technical reasons, I couldn't get into the female inherited DNA, the mitochondrial DNA, but the, the male inherited Y chromosome is what we're looking at in the book. And you can trace back the history, the paternal history of people around the globe back to specific sons of Noah and everything in between there. And so just one example then of this, this sort of racial change implied by the book. You can go to Scandinavia today, find some males, get their Y chromosomes, test them, run them. And, and you can pay for this too. These, these genetic testing companies will often throw in a Y chromosome test if you're a male, or some of them even offer standalone Y chromosome tests, which I can talk about later about how people can figure out answers to doing that or write sure. in and say if they have questions. Yes. But uh, let's say someone gets a Y chromosome test. We go to Scandinavia, blonde, light, light-skinned, uh, light-haired, individual, uh, about five, one to five percent of Scandinavian men, if you test their Y chromosomes, belong to a branch of the DNA-based family tree where you can trace their history back, let's say, a thousand years, and their ancestors are not Vikings. You assume, you know, Scandinavia, surely they'll go back to Vikings, right? Mm -hmm. Many of them probably do, but there are also some that don't. They go back to Arabs, Muslim Arabs who invaded Europe in the Middle Ages, came from what's now Saudi Arabia, that, that whole Arabian Peninsula, migrated through North Africa into Spain, and then later on spread throughout Europe. So you go back a thousand years, their ancestors are not light-skinned, blonde-haired, they're likely dark-haired, olive-skinned ancestors. But the story doesn't stop there. If you say, okay, well, who did these Arabs come from? They, they've been in Saudi Arabia forever, right? Back to Abraham, Isaac, and Ishmael? No, you trace those Arab ancestors back, the same branch, and it takes you back into northeast Africa, wow. the region what we now call Sudan. Hmm. And these people are dark-skinned, you know, sub-Saharan African-looking people. And the story doesn't stop there. You take them back. <laughs> some of those people are sitting on the throne of Egypt, 25th dynasty. So you have some Scandinavians who would have guessed are connected probably to Egyptian royalty. Wow. These are the sorts <laughs> of crazy examples that emerge from this history, wow. where it's not just, yes, we know that we all come from Adam and Eve, and from Noah and his, and his wife and his sons and their wives. It's not just, yes, we know that ethnic change can happen quickly. It's We also can now see in this family tree, there's been some crazy, dramatic ethnic change that's happened all throughout history. And imagine, you know, if every school child grows up learning this, that you may call yourself white, you may call yourself black, but you could have been something completely different going back just a few generations ago. And the only way to know this, then, is to look at your DNA. Wow. This is just really amazing. And I was just skimming through the book as you were talking about this, and I wound up at Appendix B on uh, Y chromosome, Adam, and evolution. And there's something I do want to ask you about that, but I want to go back to something you said about globalization and the United States being a melting pot uh, when it was discovered in the early uh, settlers. I think of Columbus, and you write a little bit about that, in the book, and, and you say basic biology allows us to calculate the number of ancestors for every person alive before Leif Erikson and Columbus. And it makes sense that the globalization, they ended up here, and now we have just, you know, new, there's already some, some there are people here in North America, and now Columbus landed, and now we've got people from Europe inhabiting the states. Uh, how does that work into all this as well? It kind of backs up what you were just talking about. There's two really big pieces that come to mind along these lines when we think about, number one, who the pre-Columbian Americans were, who they came from, their own history, and then what actually transpires when what we call Europeans, Columbus and, and company, arrive on the shore. So first of all, the mainstream narrative for the pre-Columbian Americas is that there was a group of Central Asians, think of the Stans that used to be part of the USSR, Kazakhstan, mm -hmm. Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, all those. People came from that region, crossed the Bering Strait up by Alaska about 15,000 years ago, and then settled and sat in isolation for 14,500 years until Europeans arrived. It's, a, it's, a, it's almost a static, uh, isolating existence, disconnected from any history we learn in school about the Roman Empire, Chinese empires, these sorts of things. What this Y chromosome tree transforms and, and dramatically changes is, number one, not just the time scale. 
where it's, no, 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 we're not going back 15,000 years. That's way beyond the flood. Mm-hmm. The DNA evidence actually indicates an origin for everyone 4,500 years ago, but specifically for the major family tree branch that we see in the Americas today, that crosses the Bering Strait probably only 300 to 600 A.D. So start to, mm-hmm. start to think through the ramifications of this. Okay, today's Native Americans arrived in the Americas just... Uh, 1600 years ago that's it wow well we've got we've got archaeology that goes back to the bc era thousands of years ago so what do you do with that what that means then is the pre-columban history of the americas has been dynamic there's been multiple settlings in the americas from asia Hmm. throughout pre-columban history it was not this static place one crossing and here they do nothing it's there have been people coming from asia into the americas and settling it multiple times there's a very politically incorrect point here, which means what this implies is that today's Native Americans were not the first, which I can address here briefly. And yes. say, there's already been a number of Native Americans who've reached out to me and said, this is really interesting history. We want to dig into it further. So I was surprised because I figured it'd be hostile reaction yes. any time I mention this. The second big point that I want to mention is, so, so we've just said Native Americans today descend from Central Asians. No controversy there with it. With it mainstream community, what they would dispute is the timing hmm. and the number of settlings from Central Asia. And this, this blows all that up. So the second thing I want to bring in now is, is okay, you've, you've got here in the Americas people from Central Asia, the Native Americans, who've been here for at least 1,600 years. Now you've got Columbus and company. You've got Europeans coming over. And it's portrayed as this great clash of civilization, great clash of cultures. Well, I just mentioned something a, a few minutes ago, and what I go through in one of the chapters in the book is to show that Today's Europeans, most Europeans, descend not from, at least in terms of their their male inherited DNA branches, their their branches don't belong to the ancient Romans, they belong to Central Asians, there's that word again, those (laughs) words again, who who arrived in Europe in the Middle Ages and, and then rapidly multiplied. The point I'm driving at is, when you had 1492, when you have the pilgrims coming over, and what was what has been portrayed as a clash of civilizations is in fact a reunion of Central Asian peoples. Oh my because goodness! Because many Europeans are of Central Asian descent. Same thing for the Native Americans. The timing of when they left Central Asia is a little bit different, but it's a it, even this basic question that we all take for granted. This family tree again blows it up wow. and transform it into something completely different. This is just astounding. Thank you so much for laying that out there in a way that even I could understand it. And it's very thought-provoking. It makes you want to dig down more and get more information. So, friends, the book is called Traced, Human DNA's Big Surprise. You can get it at AnswersInGenesis.org in the store there on the website. And we'll, we've got a lot more with Dr. Nathaniel Jeanson coming up. We'll talk a little bit more about some of the, uh, actually, some of the content in the book, including some of the charts, and we'll get to that next. Thank you for listening and sharing today's show via StandUpForTheTruth.com slash podcast. Now, back to Stand Up For The Truth. Here's David Fiorazzo. All right, we just talked about uh, these genetic discoveries that uh, Nathaniel lays out in the book Traced and what they reveal about the origins of the early inhabitants of America. Um, I thought that was fascinating how we ended up that last segment. Um, and I wanted to go briefly back. Um, wow, this this goes way back to an emperor. I can't pronounce his name, but you, but you'll tell us about him. Uh, the first sovereign emperor in China. He prepared a massive tomb. I've never seen anything like this, and you mentioned that in the book in the beginning of chapter four. When you go to the color plate section, there is this army of people, of course, that that all very look similar. And you make a very good point about that, you know, that's how they looked then, and those features are still similar today. Could you please lay that out and just explain a little bit of this fascinating discovery that it didn't happen until 1974? Yes. So if you go to China today, you can, you can visit the site of uh, the emperor of the, of the Qin dynasty. So just to set the context in terms of Chinese history, okay. there's, a, there's a whole long sequence of dynasties that tend to be interrupted time to time, and one of the biggest interruptions in Chinese history is called the Warring States period in the spring and autumn period. It's from about the 700s BC to about the 200s BC, so multiple centuries where there's just constant warfare, constant fighting. They're building walls against each other, and and this this emperor, uh, Shi Huangdi, is the guy who unifies China, and is a, is a major point in Chinese history where you, where you get 
a unified geography, not not quite as big of a geography as you think of modern China, but sort of the eastern half of that. Mm-hmm. And, and that's where they start to repurpose the wall and, and build it not against these little kingdoms internally in China, but against their main enemies to the north, sort of the modern Mongolia area, and, and the beginnings of the Great Wall of China, as we think of it today. There were, there were other walls before then, again, but they were not to keep the, what they called the foreigners out, but to keep their brothers out, because they were fighting with each other. So this guy unifies China, apparently thinks of himself quite highly as a result, and so buries this, builds this gigantic terracotta army. And what comes to my mind is, because I like ancient Egypt and watch every documentary I can on it, <laughs> is you think about all that the ancient Egyptians did and, and their beliefs about the afterlife, where they'd, they'd bury all sorts of things with them to speed them on their journey. Of course, they're not believers in any sense. They're not uh, believing in, in uh, the Creator God. Here's this guy builds this great monument to himself. And the reason I bring all that up in the book is to say, you can look on this terracotta army, uh-huh. you know, exquisite craftsmanship, very carefully and meticulously detailed features on the face and say, okay, we've in a sense got a, a time capsule from the 200s BC in China. What did these people look like? How did they picture themselves. They, and these guys are unique. Each of the soldiers, you've got all these soldiers here in this, this, this terracotta army, yes. crafted individually. What do their facial features look like? Do they look like modern Chinese? And if not, what could be the explanation? If they do, what do you make of it? In this case, there is a lot of overlap between the two. And, and when I talk about East Asian history, I think part of the reason there still is such a common thread of physical features is their geography. You've got the Tibetan Plateau, uh, which, of course, abuts the Himalayan mountains. The, the geography of the Far East is such that it tends to insulate them from foreign invasions. Hmm. The opposite of this would be Europe, where Eastern Europe has basically nothing to keep people out. Hmm. That's part of the reason I think so many Europeans today are of Central Asian descent, because people could walk in without resistance. And, and my point in the book is to say not that Central Asians somehow had a European-wide kingdom. They simply came in and had more kids. It's similar to what's going on right now in Europe, where you've got all sorts of Middle Eastern Muslim refugees arriving in Europe. They're not taking over the presidency. They're not trying to wage some sort of jihad. They simply have big families. And your indigenous European people, Caucasian-looking people, tend to be, Europe is post-Christian, and have a post-Christian worldview, and don't put much value on having kids. They don't have many kids, period. And even secular demographers talk about how, in not too many generations, Europe could be dominantly of Middle Eastern descent, Mm. simply because the people who arrived have more kids as a regular practice, and the people who were there earlier do not. Same thing now with Central Asians moving in. They came in, apparently just had a whole bunch of boys. East Asia, you're protected from the foreign invasions, except in the north. And of course, what do the Chinese do in the north? They built the Great Wall of China to to prevent exactly that. So you do have a continuity of ethnic features in China from the BC times up Mm -hmm. until now. And in fact, you can see physical features all across East Asia, down into Southeast Asia. And part of what I show in the book is there's an agreement between what you can see externally and what you can see genetically. There are genetic links between ancient China, between ancient Vietnam. There is this messy interconnectedness even there as well. It's not perfect. There still are some branches of the family tree where you can see them show up in China. You can see them show up in Eastern Europe. And you say, how in the world can that possibly be true? This is the kind of thing that shows up. These are the surprises that emerge from the family tree. And and the general rule of thumb is if you don't have geographic barriers, there's a good chance your family history or the history of your people's is about as intermingled as it gets. <laughs> that's that's very interesting, and it, it makes complete sense. Um, fascinating that this guy, I, I can't imagine this uh, emperor, uh, this is 3rd century B.C., looking at this picture in the book, in the um, this middle section of the book, how many, I mean, I, I'm seeing hundreds of, of these uh, warriors, this army. I just can't imagine how many years or decades, perhaps, it took to create this to, for his burial tomb. It's just, my mind thinks like that. I see this massive picture, and people, I know this is radio, and people are going, what are you talking about? Well, you know, because they're thinking you're buried with a tomb. They think of King Tut, right? There's one big, you know, gold tomb. But this guy, he had this army of life-sized um, soldiers, and it's, it's, I don't know, hundreds? Hundreds, is that what you would say? 
I think it's thousands. thousands. And yes, in terms of the, the, oh the workforce, I feel like the, the pyramid analogy is a good one because same thing there where how do you construct a pyramid that's just so massive if you ever stood next to it mm-hmm. in Egypt? Well, you've got to have probably some sort of authoritarian ruler who commands a gigantic workforce and says, build me my monument. Same thing in Egypt, same thing in China. We're all sinners. <laughs> doesn't matter what ethnicity you are. You have these same sort of tendencies if mm. unchecked and all need the savior. So yeah. uh, there's there's parallels there, even though I think they work themselves out in the specifics in different ways. You can still see the same underlying basic fundamental human nature principle. So um, we're going back to the appendix uh, in the book on the Y chromosome, uh, Adam and evolution. And um, I occasionally go over to the History Channel, and you got to use that word lightly when it comes to some of the stuff they, the narrative they put out there, because oftentimes when they zoom in at the very beginning of a program, there's this dramatic music, and you see the globe turning and the earth, right? Then the narrator comes on, and you hear billions of years ago, <laughs> or millions of years, and you're thinking, all right, right away, so many people have fallen for this because it's been the apparently the accepted um, view of things. This is how long we've been here. Well, you clearly dispute that in the book very clearly. And and how can where can people start when we hear some of these arguments about the age of the earth and about human history? That's a good question, and I want to see if I can kill two birds with one stone. Sure. I know we're, we're, we're taking up the spot for Roe v. Wade, but I think this is actually relevant to Roe v. Wade, because ultimately the question of when you're discussing with someone, is, is abortion taking human life or not? It's who gets to decide that question? Who calls the shots when it comes to defining life, to defining what's right and wrong? And of course, Christians would say, God does. He made us. It goes back to that fundamental authority issue. And then, of course, you've got the question of, well, how do we know the Bible's true? And, well, what about millions of years? And anytime you start pressing people on that that core question, you can't escape it. I mean, it, it, we can try to argue the science and, and these sorts of things, which is good to point mm-hmm. out to people, hey, there's a unique DNA combination when sperm and egg meet and these sorts of things. Ultimately, people, everyone has a conscience. We know this scripturally. And the conscience is going to bother them. And they might come up with all sorts of ways to cover it up. But there's, there's still going to, every unbeliever is going to still have that nagging issue at them saying, well, there's someone else who's supposed to be telling me what I want to do and what I should be doing. And I, I don't want to listen to that. You get people back to that core issue, Romans 1. Everyone knows there's a creator. They can see what's in nature. I feel like this work is directly relevant to that for, for a number of reasons, not just because it points towards biblical authority, but it's dealing with human history, mm-hmm. with the questions of humans themselves. And, and let's say you're thinking about evolution or geology or astronomy, even stick to my own field, biology. You can talk to people about butterflies. These aren't quite as relatable as us ourselves. Where do we come from? And so this book goes through and says, here's one of the main arguments for the recent origin of humanity. If you look at our family tree based on DNA, what you can see is the events of human history that we've all learned about. The Roman Empire, the Greek Empire, Genghis Khan's invasion of Eastern Europe, and the greatest land-based empire on Earth. All these sorts of things pop out of our DNA only when you've got the Young Earth timescale. So one of the main apologetic arguments of the book goes like this. It says, okay, the mainstream scientific community says that humans have been around hundreds of thousands of years, at least anatomically modern humans. They, of course, stretch our ancestry back to the apes and then to the mammals and to single-celled creatures over billions of years. <laughs> leaving that aside, they've got this long epic of so-called human history, hundreds of thousands of years. And so they would say civilization, beginning with Egypt, Sumer, the Minoans by Greece, uh, these sorts of things, they would say, well, that's that's just the most recent 5,000 years. So you think about the math, 5,000 years versus 200,000 years. That's just a tiny tip, the tail end of a much longer time scale. So would the evolutionists even, go tr- even try to go looking for the genetic echoes of the history of civilization when it represents just a tiny fraction? And we can answer that question. What we're talking about when, they, when we speak of the history of civilization uh, for the evolutionary community, is is such a small fraction really gets into the statistical noise. It's it's almost impossible from an evolutionary perspective to go looking for the signature of the history of civilization. That's mm-hmm. the main point I was driving at. Okay. If you're an evolutionist, if you hold to an old time scale, there's almost no point going to look for 
the stuff we learn in class, in history class. Very different scenario if you're thinking about this from a young earth creationist perspective. Young earth creation says we all go back to Adam and Eve, but all that pre-flood civilization was destroyed in a, in a global flood. And so when we think about Egypt and Sumer and Rome and, and the Minoans, and the Mycenaeans and all these sorts of things, all that has to be post-flood. All that has to be, therefore, only 4,500 years old or more recent. And so when you look at our DNA, civilization is basically all of human history, not the very tiny tip, the tail end. And so you should see the, the genetic echoes of the civilization, the history of the civilization, all over our DNA. For example, just to give one, one concrete example, mm-hmm. we know about Genghis Khan and him conquering from the Pacific all the way into basically Hungary today, the, the country of Hungary. You should see then about the 1200s, 1300s AD, because we know when this happened, mm-hmm. you should see East Asian DNA coming into Europe and intermingling with it. Right. You should be able to see some sort of indigenous European lineage for the Roman Empire. And, and on and on these sorts of things can go. You should be able to, to see exactly what we learned in class <laughs> in our DNA, but only if what Scripture says is true. And that's, that's basically the overarching conclusion of the book is it's all here yes all that stuff you learned in school that that pretty much every person you talk to should know unlike butterflies or horses or whatever else it is other species it's all there and can say look what the scripture says is written inside your cells because your dna you can see this history go back to specific sons of noah you can see at the base of this family tree the specific sons of noah all that's present there the scripture is true you can't suppress the truth of God and nature, he's the one who calls the shots, and of mm. course, then when it comes to moral issues, he's the one who should decide the answers. Amen. Amen, brother. Um, Nathaniel Jeanson, we've got the book linked to at standardforthetruth.com. It goes to Answers in Genesis store. It's also on Amazon, but uh, first printing sold out. You guys, uh, go ahead and order it. Um, I, just a brief, and that's, there's no brief question and answer with this topic, I understand, but I read that creationist ideas are performing better than expected, and there are better explanations now with this new research for the origin of species. Are these some of the ways that you are helping, through this book, Traced, put biblical authority on the offense instead of the defense against evolutionists? Yes, that's, that's, that's exactly what's going on. If you look at what evolutionists have accused creationists of for 40 years, they'll say, we're dogmatic, we just hold to this holy book, and mm. we believe that nothing can change it, and we're, we're uh, un- unchanging ourselves, we can't grow and adapt with the evidence. Now you're seeing a complete reversal of roles <laughs> with the arrival of this research. Wow. Where not, now that the book has come out, you've had some critics respond, PhD critics, and what they're basically saying is, Jeanson goes against what the textbook says. This can't possibly be right. And you think about that, and you say, hold on, I've put in this book ways to evaluate, experiments to do, ways in, for future research to evaluate whether or not this is true. And instead of taking me up on the offer to try to falsify it, instead of taking me up on the offer to do science, they said, no, it can't be true because our book says so, wow. because the dogma says so. I thought, what a great gift. <laughs> I, I mean, you, 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 you kind of hope the other side will make a, a, a very unforced error, yes. but I never imagined it be this bad where they say, no, we've got this book that apparently we can't question. Oh. You can't question the scientific textbook if it says so, is that's, what they're saying, that's excellent. and therefore it must be wrong. So I thought, well, thank you, hallelujah, now we know where we stand. Yeah. This, this is crazy. Well, thank you so much for your extensive work and research. We've, I think we're going to have to continue this conversation with Dr. Nathaniel Jeanson, if you would be so kind as to come on again in the future. Uh, but thank you so much for your time today. God bless you. Thank you. All right, the book is called Traced. You can get it at Answers in Genesis. And uh, next week, by the way, we've got Rusty Thomas on Monday, Dr. Lee Merritt of America's Frontline Doctors. Tuesday, Trevor Loudon. Wednesday, Pete Garcia. Thursday, Bill Perkins. Compass International Friday. God bless you. Keep speaking the truth about things that matter.